there's certainly been an upheaval. There's certainly been a disruption. And uh, the studio culture has been disrupted. However, the, the common theme that's emerging is the contact time. You're listening to Design Future Now, a podcast from AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. I'm Lishan Huang. The voice you heard at the top of the episode belongs to designer and lecturer Lefteris Heratakis. My conversation with Lefteris about the challenges and opportunities in design education was originally streamed as an episode of Design Future Live on AIGA social channels. We have lightly edited the interview to optimize it for podcast listening. Since 1996, Lefteris has worked as a visual communicator with a wide range of clients, ranging from startups to multinationals. He's currently teaching design at IE University in Madrid, Spain. His reflexive research is focused on the real-world challenges in education and the unprecedented shifts that have taken place over the past 20 years. Lefteris is also the host of two podcasts, the Design Education Talks podcast by the New Arts School and the Designers Talk podcast by the Chartered Society of Designers. And also since 2019, Lefteris has been organizing the Design Education Forum, a two-day international event that brings practitioners from all over the world to share their experiences teaching art and design. Lefteris, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Lishon. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. Wonderful. So let's go beyond the official bio stuff and tell us more about how you got into design and design education, a bit about your career journey. Yes, I, I actually started as a musician. So I was uh, training to be a, a classical music violinist for many, many years. And then at, at some point in my teens, I realized that I shouldn't be stuck in the room you know, practicing six, seven hours a day. This is always me, basically. Mm-hmm. So I was always drawing and painting and I went to the UK and did the foundation course in art and design. After that, I applied for an illustration course as an illustrator. So I trained as a professional illustrator at, at Kingston University. And then I just wanted to explore more. So I basically, after, after working as an illustrator, uh, I was also interested in art direction very much. And uh, because I realized that as an illustrator, you always need to work on, on a very particular way, in a very particular level. So I was interested in becoming an art direction. So the master's at the RC, at the Royal College of Art in visual communication, and then worked as a designer for many, many years. When I was working, I was always interested in, in, in giving back, in giving something back to the, new, to the new designers. So as you said, in 2009, I started teaching. Wonderful. And how did you end up from the UK over to Spain, where you are now? Well, this is, this is fantastic, yes. I mean, I was always interested in international education. I've actually taught in five countries. In, uh, in the latest department, the BA Honours in Design is a very inclusive department that deals with all aspects of design. So it's, it's really a wide, it's even wider than visual communication. We're dealing with architecture, with uh, transport, with vehicle, with product, with interior. So it's really the students are getting a very wide aspect and it's fantastic, very interesting. It's more to do with the course, actually. Yeah. I'd love to come back to hear about some of the pedagogy and this 
broad definition of design as you're talking about. Just wanted to circle back on your podcastings because I feel like there's a relationship there talking to you with a music background. And now you're doing a lot of audio stuff too with your podcasting, with your shows. And we were just talking like hardware <laughs> before we went live. So uh, curious about how you got into the podcasting yeah, side of things. Absolutely. Even though I was a musician, it took me quite a long time to get the sound right on my first podcast. Well, basically, when I started teaching, I saw all these, all these challenges and... Uh, I just really wanted to see how to contribute to these challenges. And I did reflexive research on the, on the relationship between academia, students, and, and industry. Uh, so after, after many years, I created the first design education forum. And then when, when that ended, the conversations were so interesting that I kind of wanted them to go on. And I realized that there was not a podcast that dealt with practice-based side with practitioners that have a passion for education and have that are teaching have experience in education but their passion is in practice so i realized that it's not much about about that area so i created design education talks podcast this year i was asked by the charter society of designers to host designer talks podcast which actually focuses on the designer because there's all this talk about design, design, and everybody's talking, but nobody's talking about the designer anymore. So we decided to have a focus about the designer. Wonderful. It's great to hear that you're filling in some of these gaps. I wanted to just address the live stream audience real quick. We are monitoring those comments there. So if you have any questions, we have a staff member who will be surfacing those up to us and we'll address those time permitting. And also for folks who are interested in this topic of this intersection or this overlap between design and music, just wanted to point to a previous interview that I did with R. Michael Hendricks a few weeks ago. And we'll post a link to that as well. That's also on the podcast feed. He wrote a book called Two Beats ahead. He's a design director at IDEA who also has a musical background. So just an aside there. Well, there are um, tremendous parallels of that. You know, design, yeah. music, a lot of my colleagues are musicians. But I also think that we also can benefit from the discipline that music has, from, mm -hmm. from the structure in design as well. So how does your music background come into your design practice? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think music and sports are two things where... <laughs> your practice really shows, how, how much you've worked on your own really shows. In other areas, okay, you can sort of kind of make it up as you go along in many ways. <laughs> but my, my music has really influenced my design practice in the terms of realizing certain things, realizing the design, but also being strict enough to work in a, in a disciplined way, but also being relaxed enough to improvise sometimes. Yeah, I think this idea of practice and performance even though they mean different things in music and in design, like thinking about how do we practice on our own, right? Individually, but also the performance of things, which I think musicians have to deal with more explicitly, but with designers, sometimes we have to be more deliberate or think about what we do as performance as well, whether it's in front of a client or in front of colleagues, right? And, and not in a bad way or a fake way, but just a, a way of how we present ourselves in the world and how, how we share our story and how we invite collaboration. Absolutely. So we have an audience question about the role of COVID. Was that the push that got you into doing more podcasting and investing in all this audio? No, actually, th that was pre-COVID. I started pre-COVID podcasting. All right. Yeah, certainly for me, I also had this musical background and I was dabbling with stuff, but COVID was definitely like the push to like invest 
more deliberately or doing more practice for sure. So you talk to so many designers and educators about what they do. What are some of these trends that you've been noticing in teaching and design practice? Well, this is a very good question. There's certainly been an upheaval. There's certainly been a disruption. And uh, the studio culture has been disrupted. However, the, the common theme that's emerging is the contact time. And of course, this doesn't apply to every college and university around the world, as there are many thousands of them, and depending on which country as well. But however, the common theme is that while a traditional design education was like being in a design agency, and so you went in the morning and left in the evening or later, many places have got about 10 to 14 hours of, of contact with students. And it does not seem to be enough for students to develop and for the students to realize that this, I got to take this seriously, you know, I can't do five other things. And <laughs> the amount of dedication and time that's required. And this, this needs to, to still be in there because ultimately what's at stake is the whole culture of art and design education. The fact that we cannot have a less than part-time design education, but it's got to be uh, a dedication. It's got to be a discipline that the student dedicates their life to. I'm really interested in what you're talking about, about this studio culture in particular, because those are often like really long classes when you're in person and you're able to do stuff, work on your work, and then also do critique and all sorts of things, which you can kind of do online, but doing three hours on Zoom is a lot, right? And it's that sort of concentration and contact time doesn't necessarily translate. So how have educators been dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, it's more about communicating the dedication and, and offering students the ability to have a space or to have the ability to dedicate themselves to that. It's more about how do we support the students? And of course, on Zoom, you cannot have the same, the same time, depending on the number of people. If you break up the group, of course, it can be different. But the idea is that this is a time for college and university to be giving students more we're providing them with more because they have to figure everything out on their own. So, for example, you know, whether it was a computer, I mean, now the students didn't work on their own, maybe they, they don't have the funds. Or they, it's very challenging in resources. And not every single student has the resources to set up a fully-fledged design studio at home. So it's really about how do we support the students? And really, it's the students that have been impacted a lot, a lot, a lot greater in this. Yeah. I'm seeing this audience question here about the studio too. Is there any good or positive aspects of disrupting the studio? Like, were there things that maybe weren't working before that we actually have the opportunity to change or improve because of the COVID situation and the switch to online? Or, or I think I think that creativity and, and generally learning works when the student is relaxed, when they're not tense. And when they are sort of, you know, the studio has some music on, or, you know, we're creating in a relaxed environment. As long as the students are relaxed and not tense, that they can focus. Yeah? At, at home, for example, they have many disruptions. They can have many disruptions. As long as this relaxed environment of focus can be created, I think, I think the, the, the studio environment was working very well before. I don't see something that wasn't. On, on the contrary, you can have long, uh, not necessarily fully supervised, but as long as the student needs to have a space where they belong and they can say, okay, I can switch, I can take the world out and focus. Yeah, It's almost like that. It's like, again, when you're practicing an instrument, you got to go into a room, lock the door, shut the phone, turn the phone off and, and practice. If you have 10,000 distractions on, if you have all these notifications, Facebook, all, this, all these things on, 
it's very hard to focus on your design project. So whether you're working sure. online or offline, the idea is that you have a space that you can focus on something. And design does require a tremendous amount of focus. Yeah, and I feel like if you're in an in-person studio environment, you can you know, centralize that and think about how you design that space, how do you hold that space, craft that space and that experience, whereas as everyone is at home, right? Like every situation is different. Do you even and have also learning privacy? From your peers. Yeah. And also learning from your peers. Like you know, having a, even, even when you're not in the studio, having a coffee or whatever, you know, relaxed. When you're relaxed, you can learn more. So there's no point. And, and also when you're teaching from online, you do not know what in the conditions that the student is in. They might not have, the temperature might not be right. They may have too many. So yeah. you have to make a lot, many more allowances you got to than, than you would have in a space that you know that, for example, temperature is extremely important for teaching. If it's too hot, if it's too cold, if, you know, if the light is not good enough, if people are doing, you know, there's so many factors that need to be controlled for design work. Yeah. There's so many great audience questions. So I'll just go back to these. Somebody wants to know what are the design skills for the 20, 21st century? That's a big question. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes. That's a great question. It's really, uh, it's like every, every discipline has its own skills and design is a, is, is a huge, is a huge area. So I think I'm going to take that into visual communication because my expertise is in visual communication. So although it does, it does go out into design in general, but for visual communication, if you're talking about that, it's really about working on your heart hand eye coordination. It's really working about your ability to look deeply, to see deeply, yeah? the ability to be able to express your ideas, the, the skills. So it's, it's about your ideas, uh, your emotions, your, your, your ability to execute. Coordinating your, the, the hand, heart, and the eye is still uh, what we need to really focus on. And because also things are being looked at a very superficial level, at the way they look. Design is not about the way things look, but we'll go more about that in, in, in depth. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to hear more about that since you've put it out there, right? How do we go beyond just the surface level? Or how do you yeah. help your students get past just the, maybe the design is really about helping students to go from the the brief to the idea to the finals and execute like that that process but that process and the way something looks comes from people's values and from people's ideals this is my central teaching my core teaching is that students need to realize that the way they do something is because of what they believe they cannot imitate visually and sort of open Behance or Google and just, okay, copy that. It, it, it's, it needs to be through their beliefs, the belief systems and their, and their ideals. And, and if we can teach students to be independent thinkers and to go on their own and to independently take a brief, take it through, through the ideation process, take it into through the, through the whole process of design thinking and then confidently come out with, with, with something, that would be brilliant. Yeah, I think this connects back to what we were talking about earlier regarding studio culture, design culture, and just the, the cultural transmission part of design education. And I think with a lot of the COVID-related response, we've focused a lot on the content delivery because that's kind of the business model, right? It's like your contact hours and it's continuing to do that. But the cultural transmission part seems to be the like more than just the content or just watching tutorials or looking at Behance as you were talking about. Absolutely. 
So we have so many great questions from the audience. So just <laughs> go to these. Uh, it's, there's a question about MOOCs. Like, what do you think about these massive online courses? Um, and especially through the lens of equity, like education for all, like, is that kind of scale actually possible, especially through the lens of design culture, studio culture, and how do you expand that? Well, it's really the design education is a, is a one-to-one transmission. It's like all the arts. It's for, from teacher to student. And while watching videos can help certain areas, certain areas of practice, getting the design, and, and, and you got to learn design from a designer, not from a video. Uh, and it's really that live one-to-one interaction. The questions, the, the interaction, and the, and the unsaid things, the pauses, the, the, the physical or online presence. Design education needs to be live, whether, whether it's in a studio environment or online. It's got to be live. It cannot be by watching pre-recorded videos. Yeah. I think this connects for me back to what we were talking about earlier with this, the crossover between design and music and the performance of being a designer, right? So there's the kind of manual part of like, oh, can I do specific things and say Photoshop or Figma or whatever that is. But then there's the like, how do I perform being a designer, whether it's with a client or with you know, people I'm do, conducting research with. And all of that stuff is not something that you can just learn from watching a video. Absolutely. So let's pivot back to you a little bit, Lefteris. Um, through all of your experience in teaching and practicing design, is there any advice that you would give to your younger self from your perspective oh, today? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, as, as a young person, I, I would like somebody to tell me to be more patient and even more persistent. It, it's, a fi- it's a fine dichotomy, but uh, when you're young, you're very impatient and you want it all right now, immediately. Uh, so to know that things take time uh, and to be more persistent. And so on a related point with that, seems like you've cultivated patience and persistence over time. Is there anything that you've changed your mind about over the course of your career, whether it's something about design or just how the world works? Well, I think that the designers, it's a challenging profession because we got to learn continuously. And, mm-hmm. and I think that the, the biggest change was when I decided to shift from, from being a pure illustrator to an art director, a designer, something, something, something greater. Uh, because a lot of illustrators or, 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 or artists tend to create the same looking work all the time, even though they have changed, everybody's changing. I think it comes in about 10 year cycles. I think designers yeah. and artists have to kind of reinvent yourself themselves every 10 years. Not, nobody tells you this, <laughs> but, but, you, but you go through, you know, things and you change but and that's got to reflect in your work that's got to reflect because you've changed so if you're doing the work this has got to reflect outwardly as well not just inwardly yeah there's so many parallels with the music world for that too and that previous interview i did with um michael Hendricks too where he was talking about these musicians like david bowie or madonna you know these masters of reinvention or self-reinvention yeah and so Anne wants to return to this topic of learning design from a designer and wants to push back a little bit about that. Like, why do you actually need to learn design from a designer? Why can't you just learn it through more passive means or through videos and all of that? 
Because design education ultimately is tailored to the student. We don't teach to the anonymous person. We teach to a particular student. Whether we can have a class, which is, that's why you've got to have a small group of students. So while we can have a generic teaching, a gener but then the class goes into one-to-one. -one. And we tailor the advice to the individual. It's just like, you know, that's, that's how it's done. You cannot give generic advice to the anonymous student. Right. Or if we could break it down into these simple sort of if this, then that for everything in design, right, then the AIs would already be doing it. Um, and, you know, we're not there yet, or like if that's even possible. Well, they, they are. The AI is doing it. The AI is yeah. doing it very well. But is that appropriate for, the, you know what I mean? The AI is yeah. it brilliantly right now. But is that appropriate for the, for the situation and the client and the client's needs? Yeah. And so are there other myths or misconceptions about design or design education that you want to dispel? Yeah, I mean, okay, uh, the difference between somebody who designs and a professional designer is tremendous. And this goes both into design education and into, into the real world. So there's a lot of offer. There's a lot on offer right now. There's a lot of everybody is offering design. Right. Yeah? But really, clients need to always hire professionals and factor in that cost into the project. It's like, there's a, there's a long story about that. I can tell you so many stories about the fact that, <laughs> that clients don't factor the cost, the real cost of a designer into a project. They, they, they do other things. They buy sort of buildings or fancy furniture or whatever, <laughs> you know, or fancy equipment. But you need to, to, to factor the cost. And the way to tell them apart is, okay, how do I tell these people apart? How do I tell the somebody who, who is selling design and a professional designer, is that a professional designer will never discuss uh, visuals in the beginning, the way something looks. A professional designer will discuss values and ideals. And a professional designer will usually use design right at the very end after having gone through a process. Not right. just, okay, how does this look? We can make it better. The conversation is not about the way things look. The conversation is, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? So really, uh, so also the difference between a well-prepared yeah, uh, graduate, and of course the graduate is not ready, they need a bit more time to, to but, but the difference between really the, the, somebody who is uh, selling design in a professional is tremendous, and that needs to be highlighted uh, these days even more. Yeah. I feel like another way to say that is, making people understand that talking about the values and the goals and, you know, sometimes this stuff is talked about or labeled as like, oh, that's the, you know, ethics or that's the strategy, but this too is part of design practice. It's Absolutely. not just the things that you're doing with a hand or the deliverable that you can show. Absolutely. So what's inspiring you right now? Okay. Uh, I'm actually revisiting uh, two, two books. Mm -hmm. Uh, the first one is what they didn't teach in design school uh, by Professor Fuchlever, which is always uh, a favorite of mine, a, a source of tremendous inspiration uh, and endless, endless uh, conversations about, about sort of, uh, the things we can factor into the curriculum. And uh, the other one, on the, on the topic of, uh, of uh, morality and values, is, 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 is this one. This is the form of the book by Jean Chicot. 
which is really a tremendous design manual. Uh, and in there, you'll find the link between uh, values and design. It's really, 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 really good way. So I'm revisiting these two books, actually, these days. Wonderful. We'll be sure to post links to that in the comments for folks who want to check that out. I also wanted to uh, shout out a related um, zine from AIG's Eye on Design magazine. They worked with some students last year and published a zine called What They Don't Teach You in Design School. So it's a, a smaller um, zine that you can download for free uh, online. And it's also through that student perspective. Um, what are a couple of things they don't teach you in design school from your perspective? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that I think the greatest one is those 10-year cycles. <laughs> is that yeah. really once you graduate, you've got to, to really be firing on all cylinders because you've got a certain amount of time before you look at things in a different way. And before you will have to reinvent yourself because, because you've changed, because not necessarily because of, of outside. But it's the way you look at things changes. You grow up. So really, uh, yeah, so the fact that you've got to keep reinventing yourself is, is very interesting. Yeah. So, well, the audience is really saving some of these big questions for the end, but I think this is important to address. So we'll go to this one. Um, somebody was posting in the comments about how um, Anne, one of the previous commenters, was maybe seeing design as a craft and a subject and not a discipline. And I know this is a more academic uh, level here. Um, but do you have any thoughts on design as craft versus discipline versus industry? Is there a specific it's both. label that you It's prefer? both. I mean, it's definitely a craft. You've got, you've got to really have, have a tool that you can use and prove that you use really well. You're selling the fact that you can use a certain, you can do a certain thing really, really well. Uh, it's definitely. Yeah, I think my take on that is to be a discipline. You know, there's different definitions, especially in academic context, but usually there's like, you know, whether it's a canon or just a body of work to refer to, there's also a professional community, right? Whether it's AIGA or other associations or just informal communities that exist. It's not just you as an individual learning how to do things from YouTube videos, which is, you know, great to do, but... Um, it will take a lot longer yeah. as well, yeah. <laughs> because a lot of these YouTube videos are actually talking about the wrong things. Once I wanted to find out the solution to a very particular problem on the wirecast for broadcasting, I watched 50 yeah. YouTube videos. There was only one of the 50 that actually gave the solution, and they all, they all professed to, to, to have the solution. They didn't. So <laughs> the, the, there's a lot of misinformation right. as well. And that the answer is contextual, right? A lot of it is it depends on what is your context. and these algorithms and the existing content doesn't always like have that specific answer for you. Mm, absolutely. So we have about a minute or so left. Are there any final thoughts that you wanted to share with our audience today, Lefteris? Well, I'd like to invite you all to the Virtual Design Education Forum happening this uh, November on the 11th and 12th. So you can contact me and uh, I'd love to have you as a speaker or, or in the audience. It'd be fantastic. It's very exciting. Wonderful. And just so we have this on audio too, can you let folks know where they can find you online? I'm, I'm all over the place. Just Google my name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really all over the place. <laughs> all right. Wonderful. Well, Lefteris, thank you so much again for joining us today. And thank you to the audience for this great discussion. I know these are big topics and we could go hours and hours for this, but hopefully this 
has you thinking and we can continue the conversation on LinkedIn or Twitter, wherever you want. I'm also Thank available you. at, at Lee Sean everywhere as well. So we will see you next time. Thanks Thank again. you so much, Lee Sean. It was a great honor. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to another episode of Design Future Now. I'm Li Shan Huang. Hope you'll join us on one of our live streams on the AIGA Design LinkedIn, Facebook, or YouTube channels. You can subscribe to Design Future Now wherever you get podcasts. Until next time.